I think we're starting a bit of a movement. Uh, we're going to start a snowball rolling down a hill. It's going to get bigger. But I think five years from now, you're going to see a very different set of assumptions when people think about data and enterprise, and it's going to have a lot to do with narrative. On this episode, I talked with Jeff Bradley. After getting a degree in linguistics, he went into corporate management, including running the innovation group for Avila, the very large insurance and financial services company. He's now CEO and co-founder of Frasia, a startup that is using large language models to help companies get insights from unstructured data, including the reviews that people write about your products, transcripts of customer service calls, and all the other narrative information that is otherwise difficult to quantify and distill. I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Brett. So where are you today? Oh, I'm sitting in my office, um, and uh, right now I'm in Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong. and uh, been traveling around a bit. Uh, so uh, it's evening here. Good to see yeah. you. Yeah. So give us the, the brief background on yourself. Yeah, I uh, studied linguistics at Northwestern. Um, grew up professionally in the on the P and G business at Leo Burnett, and eventually ran a global innovation practice at Aviva, which is a an insurer. And uh, when you're running an innovation practice, and you realize there's no way to prototype an insurance product uh, aside from with words. Uh, so quickly became obsessed with words. Um, as a form of data in order to facilitate that prototyping. Um, and long story short, we did all this kind of progress with transformers, large language models around 27, 2018, certainly piqued uh, my interest and the interest of Ben Gaff, who's my co-founder. We saw an opportunity and long story short, I'm an over 50 co-founder. Uh, uh, you know, going after it. So you were doing large language models back in 2016, 2017? No, we we saw the work that was being done around ah. transformers, and we felt the problem acutely as clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we had huge mm -hmm. budgets, frankly, at the time, and we were, we were looking for things to process all this language that we had of expressed customer needs, of, of Got it. concept ideas, thousands, eight or, five, eight or 9,000 of them globally, and to be able to organize that language as data, we we felt ungratified, you could say. Uh, and so we were we were watching the development of of this space with a great deal of hope and interest. But now we realized we just had to jump in. Um, it, it was it's such a big opportunity and so much bigger than just one industry. Uh, and so that's what led us to what we're doing now. And what are you doing now? Uh, we run a company called Phrasia, um, and if if I were to kind of think of something like Tableau, but no. instead of making sense out of numbers, uh, we're making sense out of language in its natural state, as expressed by patients, customers, employees, in their own words. And, and, and we think that the unstructured views that those people share are, are just a treasure. They're loaded with performance signals, hiding in plain sight as they kind of flow in and around every organization every day. And our right. clients have found that by hearing that at scale, they're getting a grip of what's driving their business performance. Okay, so give us a use case. Uh, okay, churn, customer churn. Uh, you want to figure out, uh, you want to hear the early signals of churn before it it blows up into kind of a full-fledged route <laughs> and all right. the customers are leaving. 
And in too often, you don't pick up the signals of that churn until it's it's showing up in business results or somewhere in the in the funnel. Um, and those the signals might be embedded in um, customer service transcripts, inquiries, yep. chatbot transcripts, all those things. It could be in in app reviews. It could be in in yeah product reviews. It could product be in reviews, social media. Right. It right. could be in customer service. It could be in your NPS study verbatims uh, is a pretty yeah. good place to look um, because rather than wait for that score to drop, uh, you can act on the early narrative signals before the score drops and and really head it off at the pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's so that's a super that's a super interesting use case right there. So so a lot of companies track uh, NPS score, which is Net Promoter Score, which is yeah, you get, you get the survey saying, you know, a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend us to your friends? Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. a really important metric that a lot of companies track. Um, but you, what you really want to know is not, you know, what happened to your NP, the, NPS score last quarter. What you really want to know is, is the, is our NPS score at risk? <laughs> Absolutely. Because, because, because of something going out there in the marketplace. And so, by so with you with your software by look, listening to the chatter by parsing the chatter uh you can get insights yeah and and proactively actionable um because i mean if you really think about you know business intelligence today and all those numbers you see um most of the big data data world and analytics world is is trading and lagging indicators most of those measures were taken after the inflection point when events are set in motion so, you know, we think that hearing the kind of unstructured words that are flowing, you know, through the organization every day, it, it is a haystack, but it's loaded with those priceless early indicators that's around the corner. Um, and so we think it's going to transform analytics as we know it. You know, we're convinced that five years from now, the way thing people approach this stuff is going to be quite different. It's a haystack filled with little needles that could jab you in the ass. And so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a manner of technical technical description. There's, I just, I just created a new tagline for you, Jeff. I think so. I think so. Was it jab you in the ass? Was that where yeah, you? Yeah, jab. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure I had the verb right. <laughs> so that's really cool. Um, what, what's the current status of the venture? Yeah, we're uh, we're profitable. Uh, we are bootstrapping. We are uh, always the best way to grow. Yep. I, you know, in in hindsight, you know, with with seeing where everything is gone, and in hindsight, in terms of what we've learned in the business, I couldn't be happier to be yep. bootstrapping. Yeah. Um, and because we'd have no, we have no runway issues. Yeah. And we've also learned that you know this is a big change mission. This is not a small replace a thing with another very similar thing kind of where that's already budgeted sort of thing you know, business. And what we realized when you take something this transformative in terms of the way that, you know, you have to think about it, clients need to catch up with it too. Um, and so there's a whole change agenda you have to sort of help the clients get through in order to get your solution embedded. And I just don't think that if we had taken funding and we'd be kind of, you know, pushing the sales really hard and expecting it to go faster, yeah. Just don't even know if we'd be around at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've seen this happen a hundred times. That uh, a lot of founders think, uh, you know, as soon as I can raise a big pile of venture capital, then everything will be fine. Yeah. Uh, 
But in fact, raising a big pile of venture capital just creates a new set of problems, not least of which is that you're now you're now scaling at an unnatural pace. That's kind of the purpose of venture capital is to allow you to scale at an unnatural pace. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and that means everything is now at risk in a way that it wasn't before. Yeah. And when you grapple with some of the realities of this kind of capability when it hits an organization, well, okay, they're researchers. You know, there might be a research department and and a lot of the identity of those researchers is, is intertwined with this tidy boundary mm-hmm. between qual and quant. Which, Quality when you have our tool, yeah. basically is gone, um, and and or data science practices where people have certain ways of doing things, and they like their high code tools, they like to build it in house, and and then this is about distributed sense making, getting it into the hands of of people who are closer to the customer who aren't technical types. Mm-hmm. Lot, there are there are a lot of things that happen in an organization where this comes in, and not everybody is 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 going to grab it right. So that's really important for us to, to kind of figure out beyond the build of the product itself. Right. So who, who within an enterprise do you sell to typically? Uh, a few different places. And, and frankly, we haven't known. <laughs> yeah. Much, right? yeah. Well, that's part of the reason, I, part of the reason I asked this question is that I know for myself, having spent a good chunk of my career in enterprise software, that this is really a huge question is who do you, who exactly do you sell to and who else is involved in the decision-making process? Yeah. And the other thing you never know is pricing, but, yeah. but you know, right. It, <laughs> right. it's like, we won't even get to that right. one. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of the journey we went through because we got, a, we got some early bites on pharma, um, on patient experience and those have stuck. We still do a lot of patient experience because it's really great to be able to hear the, the patient language in their own words, in their own environment, maybe in a in an online forum with other patients, things that you would never hear in a clinical environment. Great tick. Um, that is stuck. Uh, we saw a lot of HR use cases, but then, you know, we thought that was going to be a big business. It's not a big business, um, and that has more narrowed to kind of safety, um, yeah. and yeah. safety in heavy industry. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when you're running a steel mill <laughs> and you you know you have people on the on the plant floor um and they know everything that's foreseeable in that business or at least the bad things that are foreseeable um and that's really important to hear and it's really expensive if if companies don't hear it that's been a good use case for us but we thought it'd be more general hr but it's not it's much mm-hmm. more safety mm-hmm. um and customer experience has emerged pretty nicely but i think the challenge for us is has been over time that language is everywhere. We can imagine it being applicable in every case and and we haven't always been focused. Uh, so I think getting down to those, you know, staying focused for now on those three areas is more than enough for us. It, it, uh, though ultimately we really want to get this across to, we're beginning to see it get attention from the operational side and from the financial people in the business because they realize it's so helpful for predictive modeling because it's those early indicators. I had an experience once long ago where I was uh, selling an enterprise software product and uh, the, it was the people in marketing communications who really kind of are the ones that could benefit from our product. Kind of, that was the user that we had in mind. And we got very frustrated by the fact that every time we would do a product demo to a marketing communications professional, they absolutely loved it. 
absolutely yeah. loved it. They want they wanted it now because yeah. this thing was designed yeah. to make their life better. And but we'd always run into a roadblock with the fact that they didn't have the budget to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, and the person within the organization that had the budget um, didn't want to approve it. And so so yeah. one day so one day uh, a guy who was on my board. Uh, I was going to be in New York, and then uh, the. Uh, uh, the guy who was on my board set up a bunch of meetings for me with the CEOs of all the big advertising agencies in in Manhattan. And I thought, oh, finally, I'm now going to get in front of some decision makers. Uh, and so I went to the series of meetings with the CEOs of the big ad agencies uh, and uh, gave my little demo. And I just got a bunch of blank stares. They're like, yeah, so what? And I realized that the essential problem that I had was that the uh, we built a product that made a Marcom person's life better. And CEO didn't give a shit about making a Marcom's life, right. somebody in Marcom's life better, right? That didn't matter to them. Right. And, and so we had this essential problem where the person whose life we made better didn't have the budget authority to purchase our product. And the person who did have the budget authority to purchase our product didn't care about our product. <laughs> Aside from that. <laughs> and so this is why I asked you the question about, uh, you know, who, who within the organization do you sell to, who has budget authority? Because I definitely have found that in the enterprise software world, that's a, that's a key thing. Well, we have found, and, and, and it does echo some of what we went through and some lessons we had learned the hard way, which is the first place you go is to the people who appreciate <laughs> stories, <laughs> right? Stories. Mm-hmm. But functionally speaking, um, which two functions trade in stories? Okay, marketing and HR. Um, and which two functions in the era of big data have lost more clout in the in the executive yeah. room than yeah. any other two function? Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> marketing and HR. And so, in a way, like the the ambition is just different, and you can solve their problem. But the problem is, are you reaching across where the kind of real commercial action? Um, I think the the amazing transformation that can happen, though, is suddenly the voice of your employees is probably, or in, and your customers is is probably the most valuable data mm-hmm. in the entire enterprise, and that's, mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that we're starting to learn, which yeah. could be a real power shift. But the question is, have the people in those functions kind of do they have the ambition to kind of see that through now? Um, and and that's why we have pivoted a little more toward you know getting after finance people. Um, and not just staying strictly within those functional limits. Um, and, you know, social listening is a good example of that. Social listening. Social listening, right. I mean, you get your social listening report. It's got a lot of bar graphs. It gathers dust. Nobody knows what to do. Um, and and that is, you know, a huge issue that kind of holds us back because people will see us as another version of that. But it's not. This is a this is a an empirical approach that relates directly to outcomes in your business, as opposed to interesting insight. Um, but it's not always easy to get that through. So I found I found personally that there's this uh, this kind of a, a value proposition hierarchy when you're selling to other companies. If and if you're if you're selling something that's going to keep an existing process more organized, yeah, that'll get you like two points in the customer's mind. So if, you're, if you're selling something that's going to reduce costs. Well, that's going to get you five points in the customer's mind, yeah. right? If yeah. you're selling something that's going to drive revenue, well, that's going to get you, you know, eight or nine points in the customer's mind. Uh, and if you're selling something that's going to improve their market cap, well, that gets you the, that gets you the home run. Uh, and so the point of this is that you kind of want to climb as far up that ladder as you legitimately can. 
And so that's why I was kind of excited when you talked about the, uh, you know, improving MPS scores and stuff like that, because that is, that is a fundamental part of driving revenue, right? Every, yeah, you know, every yeah. CEO, every CEO wants to drive revenue, wants to reduce churn, yeah. uh, and wants to improve the NPS score, right? Every single CEO cares about those things. Yeah. And so to the extent that you can develop, you know, really solid case studies around that, that seems pretty valuable to me. Yeah, we're 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 definitely seeing it accelerate in that front. We're seeing also the pilots turn into subscriptions at a higher rate in that space, uh, probably because of exactly what you say. It's so clear, and the connection to results is so clearly laid out. Um, and uh, you know, I think everybody can relate to that moment when you see a blip on the dashboard and you you feel behind the moment. You feel the right. moment you see it. Right. Um, and for us, it's really just convincing people that there is a much better way, um, and 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 making it clear that this is not the same as is this is not your father's NLP. <laughs> this is not the text analytics that you you think you've seen before, um, and so that's that's a, a really key part of it for us. So what else, what else have you learned in your entrepreneurial journey that you would pass along to others? You know, just the way people react to things, you have to put time into it. And yeah. I have a you know, very strong memory of, as a child, my dad, he was an architect, and uh, he bet the house on rendering. Rendering. Mm-hmm. Rendering, architectural rendering. The problem was it was like 1971. <laughs> so it was an IBM... 1130 with punch cards running on Fortran. <laughs> um, I I think, I believe he was the first architect on earth to have a mainframe. Wow. Um, I, I can't prove it. And so um, mm-hmm. anybody in the call, anybody who sees this knows, let me know. Um, but uh, I think, you know, I watched that and my dad reflected on how even if the technology had worked, he hadn't brought people along. He hadn't brought clients to realize that they would be good for them and they didn't care and he didn't bring his people along because yeah. you know he had the people doing this and the people you know then people were in their own functional remits and and this kind of challenged that um and that even if the technology was ready for prime time which it probably wasn't because that was you know 50 years early um but his big lesson was it was all about people and and how they respond to change um, and not underestimating the challenge. of that. So for me, that as much as is a lesson that I thought I observed and learned and it, it, you know, it impacted me and I was so proud of him, uh, and it impacted me, but I still think I had to learn it for myself, um, firsthand. Um, I think, I think for me also as a, as a corporate person who spent my whole career in, in the corporate space, learning what it's like to to run your own thing and learning that people don't always respond to your emails the same way when you're running a global innovation (laughs) practice versus when you've got some crazy idea that nobody's heard of. Uh, And then dealing with your ego and, and, in in its own way and, and being ready for that. Um, So it was a big one. Um, And, and uh, I, I guess the, the other piece really is just, uh, just finding somebody who, for me, I, I'm blessed to work with a co-founder um, who is just 
my opposite in in almost every way. And and uh, between the two of us, you know, we can turn an issue over and see a lot of different angles because mm-hmm. of how complementary we are. Uh, and and in and that's not something that comes intuitively or even came in you know was was a strength of mine earlier in my career but i appreciate that more with every passing day in this business <laughs> there's this long-running debate about whether it's better to be a solo founder or whether to whether it's yeah. better to recruit you know recruit a co-founder or two and it sounds like you're saying that from your personal experience having a co-founder kind of complements your skill set has been important well, yeah, and where language is data. I studied linguistics. Ben's the data scientist. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm the storyteller. He's the right. mathematician. Right. Um, and uh, he's an expansive thinker. I mean, uh, and and I think we're both quite curious in our own way. Um, but uh, we really, really complement each other. I think in a business like this, with that much dimensionality, and and, and you know, that links to the storytellers over here and the data science practice over here. Given the span, uh, I, I can't imagine anybody doing that alone. Yeah, yeah. Not that they do it alone, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Right, right. So, um, tell us what's next for Treasure. In other words, you know, two years from now, where do you want where do you want the organization to be? Yeah, I mean, we're um, we're creating a movement, I think, of sorts, and it, it, it's it's such a great thing to be able to say, yeah. You know, the 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 things that people express in their own words in their own language is the most powerful thing you have, right? Like, what a great thing to be able to say because it's also inclusive. You know, it also says multiple choice questions don't do it. All this stuff, and so I think you know we're driving that mission, um, and I think we're starting a bit of a movement. I think mm-hmm. you know we notice our clients are really passionate, um, and I think. Uh, we're going to start a snowball rolling down a hill. It's going to get bigger. And I, I really feel we're going to change the world. I don't know that two years is, but I think five years from now, you're going to see a very different set of assumptions when, when people think about data and enterprise. And it's going to have a lot to do with narrative and, 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 and really quantifying narrative patterns and Trump trends in your organization. Um, for us more immediately, we're expanding client base, expanding geography, uh, and we've got some exciting things like South by Southwest. We're just starting to work with them, and so uh, we'll be. I can't say much more, but as, as a as a client, uh, they're a client. Yes, yeah, yeah, so cool. we're we're engaging them, and and right, um, yeah. again, I, I can't go into detail, but we'll yeah, have of course, some, of course, yeah, uh, we'll be uh, uh, in in March. We'll be uh, we'll be visible. You could say. Um, and, and I think that, uh, that's, you know, that's an exciting moment of visibility for us, but for the rest, it's really just farming what we've got, got great clients and, and it's really interesting to see how we're now growing across functions with those clients. It might start with customer experience and then move to HR and then move to, uh, you know, some part of the functional or, you know, part of the organization, um, and so moving across functions is also a great source of growth for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this whole uh, notion of how do we turn unstructured data into actionable insights has been, uh, um, you know, it's been a 
big issue challenge for several companies have taken on. And you kind of layered onto it, you know, just the most complicated thing in the world, which is, you know, human human sentences, storytelling. You know, yeah. how do we how do we parse that in a way that that a computer can create actionable insights for a uh, for a, for an executive? Um, so that's a pretty it's a pretty huge problem you've taken on, Jeff. You said that a long time ago. I remember we talked a long time ago. And you, said, you said doubtfully. You said you like the big problem. So you, you didn't say it doubtfully. You didn't, it wasn't really overtly doubtful, but but uh, but I heard it and and uh, I thought, well, you're right. Um, you are completely right. Um, it's a it is a big problem, but you know, large language models are an incredibly powerful thing. Yep. Yep. And. And in a way, it makes everything simpler. Because if you think about how this stuff works today, you have people construct their reality through narrative meaning, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And then this machine in the middle that was built in an era of linear computing <laughs> had to slice and dice and hydrogenate that language into unnatural <laughs> bits that have nothing to do with how people think, right? <laughs> Topic models, word vectors, sentiment scores, emotional category, whatever, you, whatever it might be. Um, and then... Some poor social, uh, you know, uh, in, analytics professional had to take all that stuff <laughs> and explain it to stakeholders <laughs> in the business yeah. um, when it has nothing to do with those conversations that were the original data. Um, and what gets really simple is you get the machine in the middle to understand narrative meaning, not topics. This is narrative meaning. So it's not just the functional topic, but it's the practical and the experiential context around whatever people are saying the whole thing gets simpler because it's narrative here it's narrative in the middle and you're telling a story to the stakeholders in the business and in a way that's intuitive to all of us as humans because you aren't taking it out of the original narrative construct so what's really amazing about it is that all that complexity inside the machine renders something incredibly simple in a business and so, you know, you, you end up with a client and you say, well, what's driving our low NPS scores? Uh, well, right here is the greedy charges narrative. And then you have, you know, one thing that, you know, you have this Pareto that says, fix <laughs> this one thing and you fix 80% of your detractors. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in a way, it, it's incredible how when you apply machines the right way, you can make things really simple for humans. And the real irony of it is, you know, with all the fear of AI and, you know, then all the hyperbole and people saying, well, we're going to lose our humanity. Well, we've already lost our humanity by subjugating ourselves to the limitations of linear computing. We've, we've avoided asking open-ended questions. We ask multiple choice instead. Right, right, right. Um, like I said, we, you know, we take great lemmatization stock words. We, we break all this language into unnatural bits. And in the, in the process, we've stopped using the richest thing that we have, which is our ability to process narrative meaning. Um, it's the most powerful thing on earth, right? It's, uh, and, and we, we learned that over and over, right? It was, uh, we, we see it in, you know, see it with chips and vaccines and we see it, uh, <laughs> we see it in a lot of things. We see it in Ukraine, right? The power of a narrative. Um, right, right. That's right. We we see it in politics uh, pretty uh, 
uh, pretty profoundly right now. Yeah, the power of the narrative. Power of the narrative, and and yeah. it's not a new thing, right? It's it's a yeah. Genghis. I'm a big happen to be a big fan of Mongolian history, and uh, Genghis Khan actually was was a master at narrative. And here's this guy built a what the largest empire in the history of the world, something like that. Um, yeah. oh, really? But he created common cause by kind of rallying the people of the round house. So when he had to figure out a way to get Uyghurs and Tibetans and Kazakhs on board with their thing, he found this narrative that united them through their the way they lived. And and uh, and he did it over and over again. He had all kinds of ways of using narrative to create terror as they'd approach a new city or a castle or a you know a walled city or something. Um, but you know, it worked back then, works now. Um, I don't think it's yeah. gonna change. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I would agree with you. Storytelling is incredibly powerful. I always tell my uh, I tell my Stanford students that uh, you know if you if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you got to learn how to be a great storyteller. It's just a fundamentally important uh, skill to have. Yeah, I mean, especially you're trying to bring people to a new place. Yep. And, and that story is the first way to bring them along. Right. Uh, yeah. And frankly, you know, what's amazing also just as an entrepreneur is just how you look at your story and then you find a way to make it better. And you find it every week, you find a way to make it better. And then you think, oh, it's pretty good now. And then a month later, you look at it and you think, well, that was crap. <laughs> just just how, you know, you're, you're constantly working on it. Um, so Steve, Steve Blank tells this great story about... Um uh, going out with his top salesman to uh, 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 pitch customers on this new product of theirs, and uh, this is back in the days when you you know you drove around with your salesman, you drove around from customer to customer with your PowerPoint deck, right? Yeah. And after and after the uh, after the first customer meeting, they got in the car, and as they drove to the second customer meeting, Steve Blank sat in the passenger seat and updated the PowerPoint deck based on what they had heard from this for the first customer. Um, and then they went and pitched the second customer and same thing, updated the deck afterwards based on what they learned. Uh, and Steve's, Steve's like, we did it all day long. And at the end of the day, the product was perfect. <laughs> That's how it works. That's how it works. Yeah. It's a great story about, you know, listen, listen, careful customers. And then, you know, yep. and, you know, and refine your, refine your story as you go. Yeah. Well, Jeff, it's been a great conversation. Uh, congrats on all your success so far. And, How very uh, kind, Brett. It's nice to see you. And uh, look out for all the little uh, all the little needles in the haystack because they can jab you right in the ass. They can jab you right in the ass. Absolutely. That's going <laughs> in our deck, by the way, right after this call. I revised the PowerPoint. Perfect. We're going to have an ass jabbing slide in there for sure. Perfect. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks, Brett. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes or people you think I should interview, send me an email at brett at fourthly.com. And don't forget to rate and share this show. It really helps. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening.